Welcome to the Vital Veda Show. You're in for a treat today, but first, the Vital Veda Show, what is it? It's a show about the Veda. The Veda are the laws of nature. And from the Veda, various things come from that, which is Ayurveda, the science of life, which is what I'm a practitioner of Ayurvedic medicine. Yoga comes from the Veda, meditation from the Veda, Stapatya Veda, which is Vedic architecture, architecture according to the laws of nature, all these various expressions of natural law come under the umbrella of the Veda. And one of those is Bhakti Yoga, which we're going to talk about today. One of the forms of yoga or the paths of leading to yoga, which means a union, union with the divine, union with the greater self, capital S self, that greater part within everyone. And you can call that God, you can call that divine, you can call that Krishna, you can call that Mother Mary, you can call that Hashem, whatever it is, the greater self. And there's so many pathways you can do it in life. And one of them we're going to talk about is Bhakti Yoga. And it's so relevant today. And I guess Raghunath, you know, he's such a relatable man. He's so practical. All the wisdom he shares and wait till the end when he shares his upcoming book, which is The Six Pillars of Bhakti Yoga. It's so practical and like you're going to want a pen and paper for this because you're going to want to read these over and over again. You're going to want to read things from this episode. It's a very adventurous episode as Raghunath is a very adventurous man, you know, he started kind of, I guess, his spiritual quest early on when he was a teenager and he's in a punk band called The Youth of Today, which was, you know, very successful. It had tens of thousands of fans all around the world. And then he basically went to uh, an ashram and became a monk and then started another punk rock band, which became even more successful than the previous one. And they were all monks. And he talks about, as we, we go into the story of him touring the world as a successful punk rock band full of monks. So, punk rock, sex, drugs, and alcohol, but monks, it's freaking awesome. So, Raghunath's an amazing man. He's someone who I see is really, you know, really transcended his ego. And of course, he's still working on it, but he's really diving into his higher self. And he's just an exemplar of a wonderful, integrated human being. I see him as, you know, the one who has absolutely, you know, he's a Vedic nerd, he's a yogi, he's fully into the laws of nature and the subtle aspects of yoga, but he's really integrated it into modern life in such a playful way, such a relevant way and a, and a magnificent way. So we're going to get into this episode. If you want to learn more about Raghunath, you can go to raghunath.yoga. That's R-A-J-H-U-N-A-T-H dot yoga. You can check out his podcast, The Wisdom of the Sages. And you know, if you're into this type of stuff, check out the other episodes on the show. You know, We've had an episode with Another well-known yoga practitioner, Eddie Stern, who's a friend who grew up with Raghunath in the punk rock scene band, and they both became very successful practitioners. And we've got you know two episodes with Eddie Stern. If you haven't heard the second one, it's about Siddhis, which is divine human capabilities or supernatural capabilities of a human. But there's so many things on this Vital Vedic podcast, you know, health, spirituality, consciousness, relationships. You know, it's, it's just so fun to interview and get to speak with experts in all these fields. And we speak also here about Yatra, which is pilgrimage. And if you want to join Raghunath, check him out on his pilgrimages. So you can see all that in the show notes. All right, we're going to get into it. Much love. Okay, good evening, Raghunath. So good to see you. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> it's nice to stable at home to perform this podcast. We were you know, going to do it while you're on the road, in the car, or while you were somewhere like you've been. You've been, you're an adventurous man who travels a lot. It's, it's fun. I travel a lot. I've been traveling a lot since I was 19 years old. 
Cool. Uh, I've just I just realized that this morning. It's like I have barely been stable in my whole life. I've just been on the road constantly. I've lived in this home, my farm where we live right now, for about eight years. That's the longest I've lived in any one place since childhood. Um, but even still, I travel a lot in the course of the year. Cool. Yeah, nice. The the first thing we we ask all our guests is, what did you do this morning? What what was your you know in Ayurveda dinacharya or your daily routine is quite important. So oh yeah, wondering Rakuna, what what did you do this morning? As much detail as you would like. As soon as I wake up, I do a little pranayam, and then I take like a abhi, uh, nothing super special, but a quick abhyanga massage. You know that is just rubbing. You know what it is. Love it. Yeah, a little abhyanga. Then I take a cold shower, and then I um. You know, that's a great thing I love about Ayurveda is the idea of the forget all the lotions that people have been sold. It's like you put the oil on first, you self massage it, you find a good oil for your body type, and and then you uh, and then you take the shower afterwards, and that keeps the, the 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 skin and the gates of the body very you know soft, and you never I never have to worry about lotion or dried out skin, and then um, I do my podcast, so I did a little bit of reading before my podcast. Um, and then we do a podcast for an hour. After that, I go for a two-hour japa walk. I, I, I go and walk and I chant with on my japa malas. And I live in the countryside, so I walk up and down this hill. It's like a nice little workout as well. And I walk. And because it's a forested road, I get to really – I do it in a very prayerful way. And so that's I, I really enjoy doing that. And it's a beautiful weather out right now too. And then I got back and then I have an altar and I do a special type of puja or worship towards my deities or my altar. I have these deities from, they're these, I don't, I don't know what your demographic is of your audience or what they know or don't know, but I worship Krishna and, and there's a special manifestation of Krishna that comes in a stone and you get them high in the Himalayas in Nepal called the Muktinath or the Kali Gandaki River. And so there's special rituals to do and for these deities. But it's a lot of it is starting off with appreciation to guru. If I was to break this down in layman's term, you're, you're appreciating all your teachers in your life. And then you're appreciating God. And there's, you know, Vedic rituals. They're, they're nuanced, and, but they're filled with offerings of fresh fruit, fresh flowers, incense, oils. And it's like a very almost a very sensual experience and a deep meditation. So that's what I did. And then um, that was my uh, morning. And from there, I went for a 20-mile bike ride. It was a great morning. It's been a great day so far. <laughs> I had a great day today. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, our, um, our audience, is we cater to like a, a vast range. So those who are brand new to the Veda and yeah. those who are also well-versed in the Veda. So for those brand new and those who even haven't heard the term japa, which is, I guess, quite a significant part of your practice and many people's practice of bhakti yoga, which we'll talk about, mm. we explain what japa is. Oh, japa is, it's like the, a simple way to explain it is Indian rosary. But that's the sort of the real layman's way to explain it. But you're basically chanting God's name in prayer, in devotional prayer, like almost like calling divinity into your life. Now, some people say, well, why do that? And an interesting thing is there's already mantras in our mind anyway, and we forget that. 
In traditional Vedic culture, the guru puts the mantra in your ear. And then the guru, she, she or he, gives you this mantra to repeat. And the idea is, in our life, if we didn't grow up in that traditional culture, we've been planted mantras in our ear from childhood. Sometimes the mantras are not good mantras. Sometimes they're the mantras of, what are you doing with your life? You'll never amount to anything. And we play them on repeat. We repeat again and again these mantras that are sometimes limiting us, tying us up, keeping us in a box, burying us, making us not live up to our potential. And so part of the journey of Atmagyana or self-realization is to understand all the mantras that have been placed in our minds from parents, from uncles or aunts, from school teachers, from brothers or sisters that don't serve us and find the ones that do serve you. First, notice the ones that you've been playing on repeat in loops. I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not intelligent enough. We play these sometimes in like a, a figure eight and they never end. And I've been carrying them with my whole life. The yogis don't even say, the yogis say notice them, but then add the positive. So suppose I have a glass of poison. We're not even saying dump out the poison. We're saying fill that cup under a spring, under a waterfall, and eventually the poison just goes away. So the mantra meditation adds a new type of focus of divinity. These sounds, these divine sounds, when done with the appropriate intention, they start to replace the mantras that have been keeping me here, making the same dumb choices again and again, right? Because we make choices according to a belief system. And so the mantras help recreate a belief system. They recreate, help remember an identity. Not that we create an identity. We have an identity. We just forgot it. And they say that the identity is underneath the persona, underneath the bravado, underneath what we've been tr- projecting outwards. There is an internal identity. And the mantra helps break away the layers, the mucky layers that have been caked on the soul. So that's what we do in our Japa meditation. It's hearing and repeating these names and like calling divinity into our life. How was that? Beautiful. I love that. <laughs> it's so good. And, and that's like a big, you know, part of how I treat patients of whether they're trying to get rid of habits or they want to go beyond is not so much remove those habits, whether it's a drug addiction, alcohol addiction, whatever bad habit, food habit, it's rather bring the pure things into your life, bring the suffix things. And naturally, as you beautifully said, that will dissolve away. I was just having that conversation with somebody today, you know, because I'm a yoga teacher. I see this all the time. You know, when I was a younger and a teenager, I used to say to everybody, hey, you got to stop drinking. Drinking's not good for you. You got to stop partying. It's not good for you. You got to stop eating meat. I don't even concentrate on those things at all anymore. What I'll say is, Add the spiritual, add the good, add the yoga, add the mantras, and everything changes. For example, if you like to party late night, but you also like, and you start adding yoga asanas to your morning rituals and pranayama to your morning rituals, then that late night party is not going to work anymore. It's just not going to go hand in hand with each other. And so as you add these sattvic practices to your life, you start to change your desires. And all of a sudden, what was once seemed really fun will be like, I'm going to let this go. I can't do yoga in the morning. And I really get a lot out of yoga. And all of a sudden you have all these friends who are going, you're no fun anymore. What happened to you? And I tell you what happened to you. You've just changed from 
Rajas and Tamas to sattva. That's what happened to you. Yes, bringing the sattva, the light will, will fade those darkness. Yeah, naturally we'll lose taste for that. And it, and it happens so naturally, it's not even like, it's effortless. Like, it's not like, oh, I don't want to go to the party because I have to wake up. It's like, no, it's like actually my true self, I'm tapped into it. It actually doesn't want to party. I just rather be being that. And what happens is because it's self um, realized, no one's got to necessarily preach it to you. You start to realize it yourself. Pratyaksha means you're, you're seeing it empirically with your own senses, with your own experience. And so therefore, as the teachers, you don't have to nag the students. You just say, add the good, add the good, add the good. And eventually, there's no room for the bad. You won't want the bad. Beautiful. If you start teaching from this is bad and this is bad and this is bad, it's an old paradigm. And you feel shamed and you feel like a God or source or higher power is some sadistic person who's trying to ruin your fun. <laughs> no. There's a higher level of pleasure when a person's living in a sattvic life. Beautiful. Talking about sattva versus rajas and things, I'd love to... So I think what, what you're a beautiful exemplar of is integrating this Vedic wisdom into modern life and in such a playful way. So I'd love you to speak about, you know, you're, you're growing up in your teenage years, right? You were a punk rocker, hardcore rock band in quite successful, right? So, and then that was like part of your transition or this Sunday into, you know, a more perhaps spiritual life. So tell us about, yeah, about the punk rock days. Well, the punk rock days were, I was attracted to sort of alternative culture and the music was loud and noisy and fast. And the community was sort of like really into drugs and alcohol but for some reason, I was attracted to clean living. And then from you know, no intoxication, from, from like teenage life, I, w I was more into health. And as I, when I moved to New York City from the suburbs, I got really into health food. And then I quickly became a vegetarian. And then I started getting into like, you know, the beginnings of the health food movement in America, which, you know, it's always been sort of there, even in the 70s. But you know, back then it was really different. You know, there was just like a few books on. There was one book in America on Ayurveda by Dr. Vasant Laud. And that was the only book he could find. But I was luckily had a job right next door to a bookstore that had that book and other books like that. And I worked in a vegetarian restaurant and my guitar player worked in the health food store. So we had access to information, which is hard to get if you lived in anywhere in the world because you'd have to travel to a weird community that has a health food store. Now, people are probably listening to this going, well, what are you talking about? There's health food stores anywhere. No, there were not health food stores everywhere. You couldn't find a veggie burger anywhere back then. If you found a veggie burger, it was like a bunch of beans mashed together with some onions in the shape of a burger. You know, it, it, was, it, it was very peculiar, and you have to search out those places. It, it was like a treasure hunt. I was lucky because in New York City, there was a, a few peppered around, but there was no Whole Foods or these big, massive health food chains. That industry wasn't developed. Now, veganism, health food, superfoods, Ayurveda, macrobiotic, it's all in the conversation. There was no conversation back then. 
there was no conversation about it. If you were into that, it was considered very peculiar, very weird. You're on the fringe of society. And so I'm lucky that the band got into that. And then we started rallying like that became the mission of the band. Clean living, positive attitude and uh, vegetarianism and animal rights and karma. And so I was influenced by a bunch of books and teachers from the East and, the, you know, and Western religion as well. And I, I started like basing my lyrics around these ideas of karma, about appreciation, about animals are sentient beings and they deserve respect, about self-control. And even though it was a scene that was decadent, somehow I just replaced those decadent lyrics with these very upbeat lyrics. And, you know, it was my thing. But all of a sudden, a bunch of people got really into it as well. And so it started this whole big uh, movement. Uh, internationally of sh- called Straight Edge. I wasn't like the, the only founder for sure, but I was one of the early spokespersons about it. So anyway, it's a scene that still continues to this day. I'm not really much a part of it, except I was in one of those seminal bands. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know about this Straight Edge movement, so to speak, but it's I just can't figure how punk culture, which is so centered around sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and so rajasic, how they received that, you know, and, and what would you be doing on tour? We received it with a lot of pushback. Mm. You know, we got meat thrown on us. We got fights picked with us. It was a very violent scene too. Mm. So there was pushback, but at the same time, we really felt strongly. You got to understand it was also like 1985. There was no vegetarian. I mean, it was no animal rights movement. It was very peculiar. So we got a lot of pushback. And the, the whole punk scene itself back then in 1985, it was a very, very alternative, freakish type of scene. So you got all types of people that were in the fringe, everything, far extreme left, far extreme right. You know, people couldn't care less. People were freaks or weirdos or drug addicts or straight edge. It was just a weird mix of oddballs, freaks that did not fit into normal commercial rock music. So... There was pushback, especially because we're telling all these people that are really indulgent, hey, try controlling your senses, you'll be happier. <laughs> but at the same time, when you really believe in something, and I'm a teenager and I've got an attitude, you know, you, you stand up tall and say it loud. My approach has changed over the years, for sure. Now I only teach people who want to know. Yes. And, but fortunately, there's a lot of people who want to know. I used to go to yoga studios and practice yoga when there were no yoga studios. It was just very spiritually based. There was no secular yoga, pretty much. It was all spiritually based yoga. Nowadays, there's a yoga, yoga studios everywhere. Everybody knows yoga. Your doctor recommends yoga. Your mom might do yoga. Back then, it was also another very fringe thing. Yoga, vegetarianism. I could count on maybe one or two hands the yoga studios in New York City back then. Maybe one hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as you especially like, I mean, or rather the bhakti yoga tradition is very, you know, it's very pure. It's very subfix. So how would you maintain that purity when, for example, traveling and touring? Because this wasn't a small band, right? Like how many people were you playing to? Well, the, the thing was at first that band wasn't into bhakti yoga. I was just favorable to it. But at a certain point, I quit that band and moved into an ashram. 
then after a few years living in the ashram, I started another band because the beauty of the Vedic teachings is that you're not supposed to give up what you're great at or what you're specialized in or what you're, whatever your gift is. You don't have to give that up. What you have to do is you got to channel that towards spirit instead of ego. And you'll find the very thing that was causing you pain will now go to your liberation and go to your grounding and go to your spiritual path. And the classic example is Arjuna is a warrior in the Bhagavad Gita, and he wants to renounce being a warrior and go into meditation. And Krishna was telling him, no, you can't do it. Your nature is to fight. So you have to be careful and you have to be thoughtful and you have to be introspective. And when you do fight, you have to do it to protect, not to be a bully, not to rage, not to just beat up the innocent. You fight to protect because there's in every culture, you're going to have people trying to harm the vulnerables. And so you need a class of people that are meant to protect. And so anyway, that was the story of Arjuna about him being a pure yogi. For him, his duty was to protect and to serve. And so for me, I realized I gave up music because I was getting caught up in my ego. I was getting caught up in competition. Hey, we were even straight. We were not smoking or drinking or partying, but all the subtle stuff that yoga really works on, the ego, the false prestige that comes with it, you know, you're getting caught up in distinction and adoration. Those things make the soul suffer in this world. So as popularity grew, I became more sad. So I thought initially, I know what I have to do. I have to walk away from all of this. And so I just bought my one-way ticket to India, and I you know, went on my monk quest. But it became very obvious after studying the Gita that this is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take what you do naturally. And for me, it was writing music, being a spokesperson, and use it in a divine way. So I started writing music, basically really trying to imbibe Vedic teachings and write them in a language that my audience could understand. And this band got even bigger than the first band. Mm-hmm. And so that was my band Shelter. Okay. And that was that was and that took me around the world many times over. So you're back to your question, forgive me. Your question was how do you maintain a sattvic lifestyle? Very tricky. But there's a way to do it. What we would do is, you know, you first of all, we didn't tour at least in the beginning, we were monks. So we would tour for chunks of the year. And in those chunks, while we were touring, we do all our own cooking. Because as monks, we didn't eat food outside. The food, you imbibe the consciousness of the chefs or the cooks. So we ate no grains that were cooked unless they were by us. So we brought like a candy stove. You know what that is? Like a big burner and pots. And we would just make kitchery and then, you know, do chances and subjis and chapatis and rotis while we were on the road. We just pull over, set up like a campsite and cook. Is this still punk rock band? This is this was a punk this was a full on punk band. But we were all we were all, we were all initiated monks. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And then we and then we do two hours of meditation. Sometimes we'd have to do that after the gig, you know? And, and, and then well, it gets better. It gets better. And then because we had no money, what we would do is we'd stay at people's houses that maybe the promoters. And what we do is we'd clean the entire house. We'd go in there and clean the entire, the only punk band that would come to town and clean your house. We'd clean your house. And then we'd, 
I kid you not, we would we would take Ganges water and throw it around their kitchen to purify the kitchen. And then we would cook a feast and hand select people we would invite back to the promoter's house. So we'd have 50 people at his house and we'd cook a feast, have a kirtan, and then I'd give a class on Bhagavad Gita the next day. Uh, That's how we did it as monks. Beautiful. And I think like the bit, my- We did that all over Europe and America. So good. I mean, my best translation, my favorite translation, if you had to put sattva in one world is purity. And of course, within that comes cleanliness. So it is so important. That's wonderful. Yeah. With Socham also, there's like an internal cleanliness as well, too. And that's sometimes, you know, what we forget in, a, in, in the West especially is we have an external cleanliness where we, where we bathe and we don't want to wear dirty underwear and dirty shirts. But there's an internal cleanliness of our thoughts. Whereas I can be dressed really well and very clean. But if I'm like uh, addicted to pornography then my thoughts or, or if I'm very angry and I want to seek revenge and I'm playing revenge scenarios in my mind repeatedly, that's a problem. So that's, these aren't sattvic thoughts. That's an internal filth that the mind con- carries around. Resentment, anger, fear, anxiety, lust, all these things. They're, they're pollutants of the consciousness. And without a even a value judgment it's just you lose touch with who you are because you're throwing so many filters on your desires beautiful i'd love to talk about bhakti yoga it's one of the types of yoga yeah just if you could explain what is it bhakti is it's the way to connect to spirit to source with devotion or with love there's not necessarily a mechanical process, although sometimes we add mechanical things, our physical practice, our breathing. But the real way to attract source is through love. And just like if I want to know you intimately, I can't demand it from you. I can't manipulate you. I can't put a gun to your head. Because for someone to be vulnerable and share intimacy, they have to do it by loving that person. If I was to love you and serve you and care for you, then all of a sudden you feel like, wow, Raghunath's safe. And then you start wanting to share, hey, this is what I'm going through. I'm experiencing this type of fear. I'm experiencing this type of joy. This is what my, you know, this is was my childhood was like. And you start sharing everything with that person. So Krishna or God is that object or repository of our love. Krishna just means God. It's a, we'll keep it very simple. It's just one way to say God. God has many names. You can say Krishna. In India, they say Krishna, Ram, Vishnu. So as you approach God in that loving way, not through trying to, trying to figure it out with our empirical senses, but through love and devotion, something magical happens. When we start claiming our spiritual identity instead of my material identity, I have a material identity, but it's a partial reality. My partial reality is that I'm an Italian-American male. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. That is some basis in truth, but it's a partial truth. It's not a whole truth. The whole truth is simple. I'm a pure spirit soul. That's the real truth, actually. The other truth is a temporary truth. Just like if I say I'm wearing green right now. That's not a whole truth. Right now I'm wearing green, but that, I'm not green. I'm just wearing green. 
So right now, I'm an Italian-American male. Right now. Right for this moment. thousand years from now, that'll be completely different. What the yogis say you can always say to be true is you are a pure spirit soul that's lost in the material world. So the yoga process, especially the bhakti yoga process, is a way to wake up that desire through love, through approaching divinity through love. And the process we use is mantra, mantra either through japa, which we explained earlier, through song, which is kirtan, puja, which is the worship of deities, and dedicating all our activities to that type of devotion, either to the divine and refining our vision that I'm seeing divinity in every living entity. When I say every living entity, I don't just mean humans. I mean animals. I mean trees and plants. I mean the earth itself are living beings. So when I get that type of consciousness or that type of vision, it becomes very, very powerful. Because in one sense, it's easy to like nice people, spiritual people, cool people, people that like me. But it's very difficult to like everybody. Why? Because some people challenge my belief system. Some people don't like me. Some people are rude. Some people do stupid things. In bhakti yoga, you're challenged yourself to see greatness in everybody, even if they don't behave that way or even if they don't see it in themselves. And it's a very, very powerful way to treat people because all of a sudden they start to feel empowered. And that's how people actually change for the better. You see them for their deep, deep potential. That's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful process. Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful. You, you mentioned Kirtan and that's something I race. I want to talk about that because it's, it's so related to that heart you were talking about. Because for me personally, like I only got into Kirtan a few years ago. Before that, I was a bit, I guess, uh, I felt aversion towards it. Although I had been meditating daily, twice a day for a number of years. Sure. The Kirtan, it was just, I felt some aversion. But actually it was through the Hare Krishna movement in Sydney that I started, my friend asked me to go and and it completely like opened me up in, in, in my heart in another level. And what I realized at the time, it was just a, a closed heart for me and perhaps my, perhaps a, a fear or just a inability to step into that vulnerable state of being open and singing. Like Kirtan is the practice of devotional singing or singing mantras, primordial sounds. Mm. And it's just, for me, like I, for years I would do transcendental or Vedic meditation rather, which is a transcendental practice. So very similar to transcendental meditation. And it's more, you know, directly experiencing the unified field of pure absolute consciousness. Mm. But I feel practices like Kirtan and Japa, which is not so much a transcendental mantra. It can be, but it's more specific mantras, depending on the mantra you're using. That's like utilizing that energy I've cultivated while transcending. And then I can express that by singing in Kirtan, by my relationships, by seeing patients in my clinic. So like I bring friends to Kirtan. It is like our favorite part of the week. Every Tuesday night at, at the Hare Krishna Ashram in Sydney. And like so nice. I, I'm singing like I never used to sing. And I sing at the top of my voice and no one else can hear me because everyone else is singing so loud and like can't wow. even hear myself. It's just it's opened my heart. And, and me personally, maybe I was more a closed heart person. I was very introvert. I didn't like to share, but it's completely changed. So it's amazing. Yeah, it's considered one of the five potent items of bhakti that they say that even a person who's sort of someone who knows nothing about Vedic culture, someone who's just brand new, if they were to associate with kirtan, 
they may experience what it feels like to be a Paramahamsa. They say it's there are these five potent items of bhakti. Kirtan's one of them. That just by hearing it, you can experience like wow. And people have these things in Kirtan where they just I can't stop crying, or something breaks open in their heart, or they just uh, laugh, or they they just say I was I left my one of my students say I feel like I left my body. So yeah, you're not alone in that feeling. I totally know what you mean. And there's something very beautiful about singing where it's not done with ego, where it's done almost like a group prayer. It's very, very powerful. And it does take, it can take people time for them to feel that. It's not like you go to one kirtan and you'll be singing out loud and your heart will be open. Like you can have that aversion. Like I had that aversion the first time. People who I bring, it takes time for them to actually open up and start singing. When I was young and I would go to kirtan, I couldn't get it. I didn't get it. I I couldn't even sit still. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But over time, uh, it, it changed me, truthfully. Because those who are observing the Hare Krishna movement from the outside, including, my, like I, I, I go to a lot of spending time, but I'm not, I don't really like fully indulge in all the practices. It seems that it's, Kirtan is like the main practice. It's like, what a great practice to have. <laughs> yeah, well, Kirtan is the main practice. Okay. Kirtan, truthfully, all facets of devotion. You know, so japa and kirtan and sacred literature study and cooking, even cooking, Mm. because the cooking is an act of devotion because you're cooking it as a service to you're cooking. This is for Krishna. My Lord is hungry. And I mean, you're thinking my it's it's like it's incredible. It's it's such a different relationship from Abrahamic traditions where God is very often looked at as it's like a fear based model. You know, look at pictures of Krishna. He's adorable. He's a charming child. You're, there's no fear base. You're thinking, I need to take care of my child. It's such a fascinating way to understand or approach divinity. If you see pictures of Krishna, they're, they're adorable in the same way a little child's adorable. And that Krishna... Oh, but it's a manifestation to just sort of attract our heart. Yes. So that Krishna, that divine being is within everyone. So that's why when you're feeding someone, you're feeding that higher self, or you're feeding your high, the higher self in you, right? Yeah, God is, God is within every, every living entity and not just humans as well. And that's why I think there's that principle of ahimsa or nonviolence is because just to exist on this planet, we have to cause violence. So in the yoga, all yoga traditions, they say minimize, minimize the violence so see God in every living being. And someone might argue, well, there's God in the plants. True, but very often in the plants, you don't have to kill them. Very often. Like I cut my romaine lettuce and I cut it from the bottom and you just stick that back in the ground. It grows back mm-hmm. into lettuce. Or fruits coming from trees or berries. When you cut the berries, it enhances the growth of the trees. Oftentimes there's leaves. Occasionally you do kill. And there always will be killing but it's minimized. And I think that's the important principle. We minimize our impact on the culture, on society, on the earth, on the living beings. And we learn to try to offer type of respect. A big one also is retraining the mind, how to think of people. And so we train ourselves to see good in people. It's a very important practice. Go out of your way to find good in people because the nature of the ego is to find their shortcomings and to criticize people. And when I do that, it bolsters my ego and artificially makes me feel good about myself. It's not actually makes you feel good about self. It just makes your ego feel better. 
because you're comparing yourself to someone else. So you, so you concentrate on their shortcomings. So in the yoga system, we say, no, 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 see the good in others. Let the others know it. Let the others know why you appreciate them. That's a very powerful shift of consciousness, which can really transform your life. Even if you don't believe in God, that can transform your life alone. Even if you don't believe in a higher power, even if you don't believe in metaphysical things, start seeing the good in others. See how that changes your reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one theme which has come to me, which is very strong about you and what, or what you're portraying and an aspect of consciousness, which is courage. Like when, what you were doing when you were in the band shelter, like that's so much courage. And when I see, and I'm sure people, everyone listening here have, has seen Hare Krishna people dancing in the street, playing music called Harinam and they're parade, parading in the street dressed in, you know, robes as monks with unusual hairstyles. Like that's courage to be in a, a place of such dense consciousness state, whether it's a central business district of Melbourne city in Australia, like whatever it is, it's, it's courage. <laughs> you know, um, it takes, I'm not a monk any longer, but I'm very comfortable wearing robes or Indian clothes. But back in the 80s, when I got into it, it was even more peculiar because now we are, there's internet and we're open to other cultures and we, India is very popular, yoga is very popular, even kirtan's very popular. But in the 80s, it wasn't. So there was a thing about like, oh, what do people think about me? Oh, what do other people think about me? And it becomes, boils down to this point like, who cares what people think about me? I love to sing. I love to glorify God. Mm. I love to sing in kirtan. I'm, I, I love wisdom literature. Of course I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing it to the world. It's almost like you get to live a music video. You know what I mean? You watch a music video on television or on the MTV, <laughs> and you got people dancing in the streets. But who really dances in the streets? Nobody. We dance in the streets. And you know what? It is incredibly liberating. It's the most liberating thing you'll ever do. And this kirtan is called singing. It's very powerful. Sankirtan means as a group we sing. And then there's something called Nagar Sankirtan or Harinam as you called it. But uh, the, the classic name is Nagar Sankirtan. It means through the villages we all sing. And every year I take groups of students on pilgrimage to India. And we do just that. We set up in the villages. We set up and I have, I, I sing and I have my, drummer with me and my children are playing also and we lead these big kirtans and all the students are singing and we're all dressed in white and the people are people the indians are listening and they are like losing their mind they're in so much bliss to see oh my god here's a bunch of americans and europeans and they're singing these mantras that we grew up with and they lose their mind and they jump in and they start singing or they clapping and dancing and it's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful way to serve in a holy place. It's such a beautiful way to get people to come together. It's like, it's not a performance. It's like a group prayer and it sheds your ego like almost instantly. And you feel that type of bliss that comes with it. I'm not exaggerating. Mm. And as I was saying earlier with the Kiritan, with the opening up, it kind of gets to a critical point where you're like, I don't care anymore what people think of me. I'm just going to let it out. And that's where the liberation comes. <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> it does. And that, if you actually analyze, like if you start to think, well, you know, in the material world, it's just everything's just matter anyway. How do you explain consciousness? If you think everything's matter, how do you explain consciousness? How do you explain, if everything's just matter, 
what the hell is music? What the hell is love? What the hell is dancing? Like ever been moved to dance? This is like dancing, like dancing and singing are like the, one of the, like the main limbs of this practice. And there's something magical about both things to sing in joy is incredibly powerful and transformative to dance. Even if you've been into Kirtan, you're sort of meditating, your eyes are closed, you're clapping, but then somebody grabs you by the wrist and lifts you up and then you start <laughs> dancing. You leave your body. It's like you lose you. Cause what happens is you stand, but your ego stays sitting and you're like dancing outside of your subtle body. It's very, very powerful. And, and you seems like you it's already beautiful. have a taste for it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're fortunate. Yes. One other aspect of the Vedic system that you mentioned is pilgrimage or yatra, which itself is a practice. Mm. And I know that that's a big part of your life. So will you talk about that? Yeah. Well, just like our sadhana, a spiritual, a regular spiritual practice, we have a time of our day that's for spiritual focus. Usually it's in the morning and then a little in the evening. That's how we sort of sandwich in our busyness. You have a little morning meditation. I explained mine this morning. It can be five minutes, it can be 10 minutes, it can be a few hours. When I was a monk, it was many hours. And then in the evening, you have a nightcap. And, th and that's how, that, so that's sort of a pilgrimage in a day. Throughout the month, maybe you take a weekend to really get a little bit more serious. Or maybe you have one day a week that you're a little bit more serious about your spiritual life, where you're not caught up in the minutia of the material world. In a season, maybe you go away for a weekend, right? Where you can get really dive in to your own spiritual life, your own interconnection. And then in the course of a year, you go on a pilgrimage. It's something we do regularly. I take my children. It affects our, us on a very deep level, leaves deep, deep impressions in our consciousness. And the idea is that I'm going to spend two weeks and I'm just going to immerse myself in spiritual culture every day, 24 hours a day. I'm going to be in holy places with holy people, bathing in holy rivers, visiting holy temples, eating sanctified food. And I tell you, it's paradigm shifting, game changing. You know, all my students, I've done many, many pilgrimages to India, practically at least a few times a week, people will text me or message me and say, I cannot stop thinking about India. It, it changes you. It changes you. And in America, it's sort of like, I mean, people get into stuff like in America, and I get that, it's cool. But there's something about in that culture that like supports what you're doing. Like you got, you're saying we were chanting in Sydney, Australia, in the Melbourne Business District. It's sort of like, you got to get out there and sing, and you can transcend in a wonderful way. But you got a culture that thinks, eh, this is weird, eh, this is cool, eh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Whereas in India, if you do that same thing in India, you have a culture that's completely like, losing their mind, incredibly, you know, crying in tears, joining with you. You know, it, it's something about when a culture supports it as well. It's, it's quite wonderful and it touches you on a deep level. That was my strategy with my kids, raising my kids is I want them to experience a new normal. A new normal is not just video games. It's not just going to a mall. A new normal is this is puja. This is worship. This is incense. This is the altar. This food is sacred. You make the food sacred by offering it to, to God before you eat it. You know, you pick the food with love. This is Tulsi. Tulsi is a goddess. Tulsi is a plant. 
Tell her she's a goddess. Treat her with special respect. This is how you tie your dhoti and your sari. You know, this, these are sacred clothing. You wear this in a temple. You know, this is the way you speak to each other. This is the way you treat each other. You know, this is a sacred river. This is how you bathe in the river. First, you bow down to the river. Then you offer water in the palm of your hands to the river in a gesture of love. Then you submerge your whole body in the river. You know, this is a lamp, a ghee lamp that you offer in, in circles to the deity or to the river or something like that. And with these rituals and explaining the substance, you know, these are the mantras we're going to chant today. And we, you know, these are the mantras we're going to memorize. And in so d doing that, it creates a new normal. It's not weird anymore. Like we get into this when we're older, like this is a little weird. For these children, sort of like this is normal. This is what we grew up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, and when you're in those environments, you also have support, not only from the culture, but just the whole environment. There's so many with these yatras, I love it because I also do yatra, of course, now without the COVID, with the COVID, we haven't, I haven't gone to India since some time, but every year I'll go. I don't trust me there sometime. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I went to Vrindavan for the first time last um, year, which is the birthplace of Krishna historically. And I usually am doing uh, what's called a diksha, like an initiation every year. So during the whole month of a month called Kartik, which is one of the holiest months in the Vedic tradition, but this last time I was doing it, which is in Hyderabad city, and I cannot leave the city. Actually, what happened was I had a great uncle who passed away and because of some laws of nature, I had to pause my holy practice of initiation and I had time. So I said, oh, I'm going to go to Vrindavan and it was amazing. But usually I travel other places. I don't go on holidays anymore. I just go on Yatra. I go on pilgrimage to holy sites, to these concentrated energy vortexes where people for thousands of years have been imbuing primordial sounds and their full soma, their full flow of consciousness into these it's stones true. or these land or these, you know, murtis, these 3D phenomenons of a consciousness state. And the power is just so strong. It's true. It's true. You feel it. Yes. You feel it. You get out of the car and you just want to bow down to the land, yes. to the earth. Yes. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, Yatra pilgrimage, it's, 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 it's like, it's like our practice, you know, we can be in, engaging in, you know, nice food and having relationships in, but it's like a spiritual holiday. It's more fulfilling, more uplifting, perhaps. It, you know what? It's, it's a holy day. It's a holy day. And, you know, tr traditionally, this is what Indians did their whole for millennia, is there is no Epicot or Disneyland or <laughs> Six Flags. It's you go to a holy, you take your family and you go to a holy place. And the children remember that their entire life. Because if you go to these holy places like Haridwar, Rishikesh, Vrindavan, it's almost like, you know, in America we have these things like a county fair. You know, they got the rides and they have like the suites and they have, you know, some vendors selling things. If you go to these holy cities, it's sort of like a county fair. It's very festive. Mm -hmm. It's very kid-friendly. It's not like, you know, I grew up going to a Catholic church, and it was solemn, and it was grave, and it was thoughtful, and it was prayerful. We kneeled, we stood, we kneeled again, we sat. But the mood was gravity. When you go to these holy places, there always is a mood of gravity, but there's always a mood of festivity as well, isn't there? Absolutely. It's like a festival. <laughs> 
It's, it's hotels. It's like so, it's very it's, joyous. It's very it's exactly like a county fair or a holiday place. It's hotels. People save up to go to it. It's, it's, <laughs> love it. Exactly. And for my kids, it's like they're they're oh when can we go? When can we go back? Let's go to India. Let's go to Vrindavan. Let's go to Haridwar. Let's bathe in the Ganga. This is incredible. You know, it's like it's not like when I was little trying to get me to go to church where they'd have to tempt me. Oh, you want some Dunkin' Donuts? You get some Dunkin' Donuts if you go to church. I was like, okay, I'll take those donuts. You know what I mean? You'd have to like uh, bribe me with a donut to get me to go. Yeah, beautiful. Um, before we wrap up, I want to – have you got a book coming out? Because I heard you speak about a book. I don't know if you've it's come out, but to do with six factors of life or – Yeah, well, I have one I'm working on. My publisher wanted me to write my own story first, so that's going to come out first. And that should be out in April – 2022. I don't have my title yet, but basically it's my life story. And then also this other one called the six pillars of bhakti yoga, which is these ancient techniques of how to radically transform your life with just simple practices. And I think it's going to, it's, it's, it's good for everybody. Even people who aren't spiritual, but there's a lot to walk away with from this book. But for those who are into meditation and to spiritual practices, it is like a fast track and a necessity to really imbibe this practices. And it's, it's not my teachings. They're ancient teachings. I just sort of like categorized them and extracted them and, and made them very like, you know, updated them. They made them like sort of relevant for the common modern man, mm-hmm. modern mankind, person kind. What's the, how do you say it nowadays? Humankind. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Beautiful. So there's six pillars of bhakti yoga. Mm-hmm. Do you want to briefly? I think you talked, I don't know, if you talked about some of them. Perhaps? Sure. The, the first one is I do not criticize. Criticism means I'm trying to correct the world. And it generally is a smokescreen for me working on my own problems. It doesn't mean we don't discern. It means I don't take great pleasure in finding fault with other people. The next one is I'm tolerant. That has more to do with situations. I learned to become tolerant instead of complaining. If I complain on a regular basis, it's like signing a contract with being miserable. So I don't criticize and I'm tolerant. The third one is I take no offense. I'm not walking around with resentments. I have to unload that heavy-weighted suitcase I'm carrying around. And let go of resentments that have built up either from some traumatic experience or because I just tend to think people are out to get me and I create an offense. And to the degree that I'm offended, I suffer. Sometimes we're offended with people that are dead. We have resentment for dead people. It's so ridiculous because to the degree that I resent, I'm in pain. They're not in pain. I'm in pain. So for our benefit, we learn to let go of resentment. Number four is I'm quick to apologize. See, oftentimes I get resentful and angry when people do something to me, but I forget about my shortcomings where I hurt other people. So I have to be a little bit more conscious how I treat people and I'm quick to apologize. The fifth one we talked about today is you start to see the good in others. You actively see their good, which this might be hard for a lot of people. And if it is, you should understand that's a very diseased condition. I see the good in others and I let them know it. 
I tell them how I feel and why I appreciate them. That practice alone can change your whole life. And the last one is I'm grateful and I keep a tally of my blessings. Very, very powerful. And this is a huge part of the bhakti tradition is we go through all the teachers in our life and we meditate upon how this good fortune has dropped in my lap and how all these people have been sent to me for my edification. And it helps even out, you know, for some people with mild depression, it can change your whole world because we tend to lean in towards why things are not going my way. That this is, you know, it's unfair. We start to count what's working against us and start of count all the blessings that we have. And that mindset can really change us. And if you're one of those persons who's finding the problems in life, I highly recommend you go to your iPhone in your notes section and write 20 reasons why you're blessed. Read it every morning and add two more to it. And let that be a morning practice for yourself. It changes your way of thinking. It changes the way you see life. And it changes the way you treat people in this world. So these pillars alone, whether you're spiritual or not spiritual, they're, they're transformational, they're powerful. And the book will go into some greater detail about how to really work them. Beautiful. Love it. So Thank you. So good. So practical. So relatable. Would you share what is the meaning of your name, Raghunath? Raghunath is named for Ram. Mm-hmm. Ragu is the dynasty of Ram. So Raghunath means the lord of the Ragus. Mm-hmm. So Ram is another way to say God, but he's from one of the ancient epics of India. He was the hero of the ancient epic called the Ramayana, which is, there's, there's like three major epics in India. One is the Ramayana, which is the avatar of Ram, And then the avatar comes in the form of Krishna. And that's the next big epic, which is the biggest epic in the world, actually. It's 100,000 Sanskrit verses. So most of the ones we read are generally condensed. There's a great version on Audible by by the author Krishna Dharma. And it's called the Mahabharata. And that's a beautiful story, the, the best story ever told. And that contains one book called the Bhagavad Gita, one chapter called the Bhagavad Gita, of course. Um, and the third one is, which is a good segue into our what I do every morning is I do a podcast, and it's the study of this last book, which is called the Srimad Bhagavatam, also known as the Bhagavat Purana. And these are all the avatars of Vishnu and how to, how to develop bhakti in your life. So every day we study this. You can listen to wherever you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and it's called Wisdom of the Sages. And if you like to binge listen to things, you can or binge watch, you can binge on these things. If you're feeling down in the dumps, you binge listen to spiritual things. We become what we put in our ears, right? It creates our consciousness. So we created this podcast for people who like yoga philosophy. But it's not just hearing yoga philosophy at a yoga teacher training or taking a course in Ayurveda. It's really about hearing it on a regular basis that starts to change the way we think. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You hear truth on a regular basis, it makes us act differently. Yeah. That's why for me... So check it out, Wisdom of the Sages. Yeah, and so absolutely you can binge it because Raghunath with with his colleague is doing it every day. So it's huge. It's powerful and it's a commitment and there's accountability and it's 
purifying and edifying, and I'm really grateful we're doing it. Yeah, and that's... We've got thousands of people who tune in every day. We even have 100 people that do it live with us Wow. at 5 a.m. in the morning. Wow. Um, yeah, it's great. We have special guests once a week. We have questions and answers once a week. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard a few episodes. It's very fun. I love it. It is fun. It's 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 dead serious, and it's really fun too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the importance of sodaya. Every day, getting this knowledge. You know, every day, study. That's why I mean. Every day, drinking it up. Every day, I, I'm reading. It's the, really true. I'm reading the Ayurvedic Shastras, the classical text daily, and studying Sanskrit every day. So yeah. Beautiful. Or, or else, what happens is, it's just like going to a gym. You go, you go once a week. That's not going to change you. Yeah. You got to go every day, or you got to go many days a week. You have to have some explicit goal. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, Raghunath. Explicit regulation in your life. Can we Thank end you. with, if you have a shloka of a Vedikim you'd like to share or chant anything? Does anyone? Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadhi Gaurabhaktavrinda. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Thank you. Thank you. Keep up the good work, my friend. You too, my brother. Yes, how how awesome! What a, what a powerful man! What a what a fun man! He's like so adventurous and really a beautiful teaching for us as to how to integrate in life. So, if you want to join Raghunath's pilgrimages in India, just go to his website raghunath.yoga and check out the show notes if you want more information. Go check out your local kirtan, which is happening near you. Like, just search. Um, it doesn't have to be Hare Krishna kirtan. There's so many different ways of kirtan and bhakti yoga. Um, Hare Krishnas are all around the world. You can easily find them, and they have good food and good music. <laughs> but seriously, everywhere, just just unleash, just sing. I mean, you don't have to sing. You do what you want. But as we've explained, no more, no more need to explain. So, if you appreciate this work, please leave a review. Share this on on Instagram story. Tag me and Raghunath. Tag Vital Veda and tag Raghunath. And yes, let's share this wisdom and subscribe to hear more episodes. And thank you very much for joining us and listening and making it to the end and engaging and sharing and participating. So until next time, my friend, much, much love.